Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, I want to invite you then to turn to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, and you'll find that on page 600 of the Black Church Bibles that are around the room, page 600, large print, 712, if you're using one of those. Last Sunday, we ended a year with the first 11 verses of chapter 40, and this morning, I want to give us the most beautiful, uh, lovely vision of who God is in the rest of chapter 40. Last week was the coming shepherd, this morning the incomparable God. Let's hear God's Word together. Verse 12 is a question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Making a big promise is one thing, but keeping that promise is another. Isn't that true? Making a promise is one thing, but keeping it is another thing altogether. You are my best friend, and I promise you will always be my best friend. Spoken age eight. Well, what has happened to that promise at age 28? I take you to be my wife. From this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live according to God's holy law. And in the presence of God, I make this vow. Making a promise like that is one thing, isn't it? It's easy to make, but keeping it is another altogether. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, God makes a huge promise. I am coming to get you from exile in Babylon, and I will rescue you myself. I will personally bring you home, and all the world will see my glory. Promise. Promise. Really, Lord? Rescue us from Babylon? No, 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 not possible. See, friends, this morning, God knows, and Isaiah knows. God knows, and Isaiah knows what the human heart is really like. What what are you and I like this morning? Really, God? As a new year begins, really, you're there? What are the people saying in Isaiah 40? Have you seen how big Babylon is, God? How strong she is? How glorious she is? How crushed we are? How broken and devastated we are? Isaiah knows, God knows that when these words were spoken in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the people were going to have a problem with trust. A problem with trusting God. Look at verse 27. It's the key question in the chapter. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you ever said that to God? You can't see me, God. And you've forgotten me, God. You don't remember my name. Have you ever said that to him? I wonder where you are as 2024 begins. I mean, I know you're here this morning, but in this one room, we are sitting here in a hundred different places with God, aren't we? 
Some of us are making up our minds about whether this is the year we pack it all in. Some of us are thinking, I'm closer to Him than I have ever been. And so we have the rest of this chapter. Well, says Isaiah, the rest of this chapter, you make up your own mind about whether this God can be trusted. Can He be trusted? Isaiah says, can He be trusted as I show you four things about Him, four things to see about God together this morning. As a new year begins, friends, I simply want us to enjoy the skill of a, of a prophet's poetry this morning. That this is a chapter to exult in, to rejoice in, to soak in. Let, let the words do their work on you and wash over you. Let Isaiah give you four reasons for trust in 2024. Number one, this is verses 12 to 17. Friends, trust God with me because He is a God beyond all measure. He's a God beyond all measure. Verses 12 to 17. Look at verse 12 on its own. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? What Isaiah does is he takes certain parts of the world and he puts them in contrast with each other as a way of talking about the whole earth. So if I was to say to you about our conference coming up on Saturday that people come to that conference from north, south, east, and west, we'd be meaning, wouldn't we? I'd be meaning that people come from everywhere to it. When Isaiah refers in verse 12 to, to waters and then to heavens and then to dust and then to mountains and hills, that this is his way of drawing our attention to God as the one who made everything, everything. Here are the extremes of the world, that the lowest points, the highest points, that the mountains above and the deepest oceans below and the smallest particle of dust and the biggest mountain on earth, every single bit of it, Isaiah says, is in his hands. In his hands. So, so what, is it about the, what is it about the world that Isaiah wants us to see? It's all to do, <clears throat> it's all to do with scale, isn't it? Measurement. Look at verse 12 again. Here are two human ways of measuring, the hand and scales. Now, now take your hand and look at it. What, what can you measure in the hollow of your hand? What, what can you hold? Not a lot. What, what can you measure with the span of your hand? I don't know, what's that? Eight, eight inches, something like that? What can you measure with that? What, what have you got on the scales in your kitchen at home for Sunday lunch this afternoon? What, what's on it? Just a, a bit of flour, I guess. Not the whole packet, just a little bit. Now says Isaiah, what has God got in the hollow of his hand? What's he got in the hollow of his hand? Can you list them? The Arctic, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, and the Southern Oceans, all sitting there together. One hand, not two. He hasn't even scooped them. It's one hand. And, and, and when God puts out his little finger and thumb and he, he holds it in front of him and he measures something, well, what has he got between his finger and thumb? Oh, just the heavens. 
Just the heavens themselves? What's he got on his scales as he weighs? The Sahara, the Ngobi, and every other single bit of dust and dirt in all the world sits on his scales. It's all there. And to God, it's just a few items, not a lot. What's he got on his measuring scales? Everest, the Himalayas, and the Andes, and the Rockies, they're all sitting there. You you name it, the peaks, the Monroes, you've climbed them all. They are all sitting there on his plate, on his scales. Now, friends, look again at verse 12. What do you notice about all of these measuring devices in verse 12? They are small-scale measuring devices, aren't they? Small-scale. The hollow of hand, the the span of a hand. There isn't even a measuring tape here. There's not even a yardstick here. Now, you notice that the devices that you and I use to measure really small things are the devices God uses to measure really big things. So here is the poet's punch, friends. Here's the beauty of verse 12. God stretches out his gauge stretches out his span to gauge the size of the universe. Imagine if he tried to build something really big. That's what Isaiah is saying. The, The whole universe is between finger and thumb. Oh, it's tiny to him. Now, now, do you see where Isaiah is going with this? Let's get this right out in the open this morning, right out in the open early on from the start. <clears throat> Here's the question. Is God big enough to rescue us? Is he powerful enough? Is he able to do it? You know, friends, that the doubt that God is big enough to see me safely home That doubt is the most awful, joy-destroying, assurance-sapping, comfort-robbing doubt we can have as we go through life with the Lord Jesus we know and love, isn't it? Because it means we go through life with the Lord Jesus dwarfed, dwarfed by people and problems who we regard as much, much bigger than Him. Verse 11, is the Lord Jesus Christ really my shepherd? Can he really hold me fast? It's true, isn't it? The deepest cause of some of our greatest sorrows and anxieties and struggles in life, the deepest cause of them is that the God we worship and love in our minds and hearts actually is not that much bigger than us. Just a slightly bigger version than me. There is no deep, unshakable trust that one day all things will be right because He is big enough and powerful enough and strong enough to save us and to set the fractured universe back to the way it was meant to be. Listen to David Wells, a theologian. I don't know if you'll agree with this. I I agree with him. He says this, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. Those who say they believe in him consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetite for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. No, 
says Isaiah. No, God is not weightless. He is weighty. He is expansive. He is more full of capacity than we've ever imagined. This is just one, one verse. Look what happens when you move into verse 13 and verse 14. We move from toolkit vocabulary, measuring and so on. We move from the classroom. We, we move from toolkit to classroom. God is beyond all measure of size, verse 12. Verse 13 and 14, he, he is also beyond all measure of learning. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or shown him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Verse 13 and 14, friends, is the world of prelims and degrees. This is the PhD seminar Wednesday afternoon. This is the MBA course in business. Nobody gets through any of those things on their own. That's the point of the verse. What you and I know this morning, somebody else taught us. Isn't that right? Even if you taught yourself something, you learned it from a book somebody else wrote. But tell me, says Isaiah, when did God ever have to put up his hand and ask for help? Whom did God speak to? You've never drilled an oil well or built a house without asking for help. You probably haven't even built a garden shed without asking for second opinion. But which subcommittee did God learn wisdom from, Isaiah asks? What, what did he have to Google? What, what planning permission did he need to create a universe? It's a lovely thing to look around a room and see so many young folks, students, young people, children. I want to say to you, friends, as you fill your mind with books and learning and literature and sums and knowledge, when all of those things become infectious to you and you long to learn and you love learning and growing, never ever think you know more than God or know better than God. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Those of you who know your Shakespeare and Hamlet, Oh, there is an infinite gulf between our puny grasping, our, our finite grasping after truth. There is an infinite gulf between that and the infinite mind and knowledge of God who has never, ever been stuck for information. He's never been unsure about what to do. I, I think of the number of things that perplex you at the start of the year. What, what's going to happen when I reach... April or May, and this change comes, and that event is coming in the summer, and what will happen here or then? God, God is never perplexed, never unsure. As your mind grows and grows, and it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, isn't it, for, for young folks in particular, pursue it if you can with all that you can. But as your mind gets bigger and bigger, make sure you measure your mind by the scale of God's mind. God is beyond all measure. One last thing to see here. God is even beyond the greatest measure of our worship. He's even beyond the greatest measure of our worship. Verses 16 and 17. This is incredible. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. See, Lebanon was famous for its cedar trees. 
amazing amounts of amazing wood. Isaiah is saying, imagine harvesting the whole, the whole forests of Lebanon and presenting them to God on the sacrificial altar. Imagine if you took every single tree in the whole of Lebanon and every single animal in the whole country and offered them all up to God in one enormous sacrifice. It would not be worthy of Him, Isaiah says. Incredible thing to say, isn't it? That the sacrificial system was God's idea. God asked His people to do it. The sacrifice of one animal was enough to show me that I can have my sin forgiven. One sacrifice was enough. Yet here is Isaiah saying there is not sacrifices enough in all the world for this God. I want to ask you this morning, what, what do you think we're doing in our worship service this morning when we offer worship to God? Are we coming close to the scale and the size and the grandeur and, grandeur and the majesty of His being in what we're doing. I mean, it doesn't matter the type of music, does it? What if, it's, what if it's the most wonderful music in a stadium packed full of singing? I saw this week in the United States, two different student conferences took place. One of them had 11,000 students at it, and the other had 60,000 students, 60,000 in a stadium taking the roof off with singing. Is, is it enough? Does it come close to the scale of who God is? Imagine you live a life of perfect worship in thought and mind and deed. Then, then do we come close to the kind of worship worthy of Him? No, somebody's put it like this, the greatest and most beautiful piece of music by Bach is to God tinkling chopsticks on the piano. It's not that it's not beautiful. It's not that it's wrong to offer the best that we have to God. Here's the thing, but it is not a like-for-like -like offering. Here's the way I've heard it expressed. This is right. We must not let the greatness of the God we worship be scaled in our minds to the greatness of our worship. Isn't that helpful? We must not let the greatness of the God we worship be scaled in our minds to the greatness of our worship of Him. Look, look at verse 16 again. <clears throat> Alec Mateer says this about it, over every human effort to move God, over every human effort to meet God's demands, to satisfy His requirements, to maneuver Him to our advantage, and to climb up into His good books, Isaiah writes, not enough. Not enough. That, that's the idea in verses 15 to 17, isn't it? Not enough. Nothing. Well, when verse 17 says, we are nothing before God, Isaiah, Isaiah is not talking about our value to God. No, he's talking about our stature, our, our scale. Friends, there is no comparison between your four-year-old in his Lionel Messi Barcelona top and Lionel Messi in his Barcelona top. There's just no comparison. The scale is wrong. So I wonder this morning, can we hear Isaiah saying to us again, verse 10, 
Verse 10 of last week's passage, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Verse 9, Behold your God. Can you see Him? Can you see Him this morning? Trust God because He's beyond all comparison. Number two, Number one, trust God because he's beyond all measure. Number two, trust him because he's beyond all comparison. All comparison. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The point is there is nothing you can compare with him. And so Isaiah says, okay, if there's nothing, let's take Let's take one of the things that people try to do to compare with him, an idol. Let's take an idol. Now we know, don't we, many of you know that in Hebrew thought, the main idea often comes in the middle. We tend to work logically to a conclusion. That's where the climax is. Hebrew thought works inwards and then outwards again. Here is the middle of the chapter, nestled right in the middle is the main point of Isaiah 40. For Babylon was awash with idols. They were everywhere. And God's people were soon going to be rubbing shoulders with people saying to them, look, you say you believe in the God of heaven and earth. Well, he didn't do a very good job, did he, when we rolled into town with our tanks and raised your temple to the ground. Look where you are now. You're not even in your promised land. Where is God? Have a statue of Marduk instead. Worship Bel. Worship Nebo. Look how it's turned out for you, that ancient religion. How's it going? You're a refugee here in our land, but we are citizens. You see what's happening there when people live like that? Comparison is happening. Whose God is stronger? And so Isaiah here, verse 18, with a very straight face, but with extremely dry humor and biting sarcasm, Isaiah points out that these wonderful gold idols that the people are surrounded with are made by what? Human hands. Twice we're told that a craftsman is required. And look, even the poor man has an option in verse 20. Even the poor man can get his hands on an idol. He can choose wood that will not rot. This is very inclusive religion for all classes in society. There is an idol available for you. Well, it's so amusing, isn't it? People way back then, how gullible, how unenlightened they were. Fancy being obsessed with the fixtures and fittings of your idol. It's amazing, isn't it? Verse 20, he seeks out a skilled craftsman to nail down your idol on the mantelpiece so that it does not move. Ah, we say to ourselves, no one could be so stupid as to trust silver and gold instead of God, would they? Nobody would ever trust non-rust metals, non-rot wood. We wouldn't do that. Fancy being obsessed with the appearance of something in your home that gives you worth and value and meaning. That that, that little item in the corner, nobody would do that today, would they? Certainly not among us. God's people, no, we would never do such a thing. We, We know God is a God beyond all comparison, don't we? 
What one theologian has said, we are glory-resistant people. Glory-resistant people. We, we, we resist His glory. And we fashion our own glory instead. And the baubles and the trinkets and the things that we hold and that we touch somehow come to seem more glorious than the God of heaven Himself. The people God made and fashioned and formed with His own hands. How astonishing that we should then in turn fashion and form things with our own hands that give us more trust and safety and security than Him. No, God's eternal power, His divine nature clearly proclaimed to us night and day in our universe. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and women, don't we? God is beyond comparison. Beyond all measure, beyond all comparison. Number three, friends, God is beyond all rivals. God is beyond all rivals. Isn't it true to us today, Christ's rivals seem to be king, not him. His rivals in the world seem to rule. Look at Christ's people throughout the earth. Look at the power of world leaders and ask yourself, do Christ's people seem to be winning? Isn't it true to us, Christ's rivals seem to rule, not him. Jesus has been gone a long time. Is he really coming? Isaiah says, God has no rivals. God has no rivals. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Brothers and sisters this morning, I hope you know in every era of world history, we will see, well, take your pick, Pol Pot raging like a beast against Christ's people, the savage brutality of an Islamic state demanding, demanding the slaughter of the people of the crucified Nazarene, a Putin, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Isaiah says, verse 24, look at the image. Put, put all of those leaders in the palm of your hand and imagine whew, blowing on them. It's what, it's what God will do. It's what God will do. That is what happens when kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and our Lord God rules them all. What about verse 25? <clears throat> what a picture to whom... Then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. What, what's he pointing to in verse 25? The stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one star is missing. See, look, says Isaiah, while you're looking around, trying to find someone or something to compare to God, why don't you try lifting up your eyes to the night sky? D did you see what God did just last night? Have you ever seen, I sometimes see it when I'm driving down to the church office on a Monday morning, 
going past one of the schools, you see the teacher in the high-vis jacket with all the children crossing the road, and there's a teacher at the front and a, a te- classroom assistant at the back, and they're counting them across the road. You see it like a teacher on a, a school trip, don't you, on the bus, counting the children back onto the bus, checking them off one by one. Yep, yep, got you, name, name, name. See what Isaiah is saying? Do you know why the stars shine at night? Because God calls them out one by one. A billion stars in a universe, and he knows them, Isaiah says, by name. Yep, it's your turn. Out you come. Your turn to shine tonight. The, the sun is our closest star. The sun generates energy with the same explosiveness as a hydrogen bomb, with its own continuous internal nuclear fusion. The surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, while the center of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The, The diameter of the sun is 109 times larger than the earth. Its volume could contain a million earths. The sun is just an average star. It's the center of our solar system, which is inside a galaxy called the Milky Way. And this galaxy spins in the open expanse of space. The Milky Way contains over 100 billion stars. To count them one by one, it would take us 3,000 years. The Hubble Space Telescope tells us there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. And that universe... God takes it and measures it in a span. Thumb to finger. Oh yeah, that one. That's the size of it. What would take us 3,000 years to count? God does it every single night as he leads out the stars one by one by one, name by name by name. Friends, I want to ask you, Is there anything or anyone in your heart who is greater than God in 2024? Now, if you're like me, we'll say, no, there isn't. But if you're like me, there probably is. Isn't it true? We we dwarf God and, and we magnify ourselves. He gets small And people get big. Often he is so small and other people are so big and problems are so big and difficulties are so big. Isn't Isaiah telling us there is no one and nothing more powerful than him? There is neither enemy nor rival nor idol nor threat nor intellect nor challenge nor heartache nor sorrow nor sin that he is not big enough to hold and to overcome. Friends, do I believe it? Do I believe it? Do you believe it? Can I give you one last one as we finish? Number four, God is beyond all human strength. Beyond all human strength, beyond all measure, beyond all comparison, beyond all rival, beyond all human strength. Verses 28 to 31. 
These verses are all about a contrast, aren't they, between human strength that comes to an end of itself and God's strength which never depletes, never runs out. Verse 30, even youth shall faint and young men shall fall exhausted. That second reference in verse 30, the the parallel phrase young men, that that, that second phrase is, is... is a word for the choice young men that go to war. Fighting men. It's it's the word that was used for the kind of men that make it into the military. See what Isaiah is saying? Even Navy SEALs have a shelf life. Even the SAS stop eventually. They might keep going much longer than you, but eventually they will stumble and fall. You know, somebody has worked out that if you get eight hours sleep a night over an average lifespan, you spend a third of your life in bed. Isn't that incredible? A third of your life being recharged for the other two thirds, and then you die. We, we are so weak, aren't we? We are so limited. But God never, ever runs out of energy. How many things can you do if you multitask? Like three, if you're a man. I'm not going to count the number if you're a woman. You know it's higher, don't you? Remember the famous words of John Piper? In any one thing, God is always doing a thousand things. In any one thing, God is always doing a thousand things. Most of us struggle to do one thing, two things, three things. Can you imagine it? The the prayers this morning of Trinity Church as we pray them, the prayers of all His people in all the earth are before His throne and He knows just what to do with each one. His understanding. His understanding. Who can fathom? Oh, friends, we have not even scratched the surface of what God knows and what God can do And yet God's wisdom has the kind of depth that you can swim in it and swim in it for all eternity. Down and down and down into God and you will never reach the bottom up and up and up for all eternity and you will never plumb the depths of who He is. That, says Isaiah, that one, that one, verse 31, that is the one you need to wait for. Wait on Him Trust Him. Come to Him. I want to say to you this morning, friend, God is not too great to care for you. Isaiah is saying He is too great to overlook you. He's not too great to care for you. He is too great to forget about you. He's too great to not know you by name. Oh, He sees your pain. He knows your joy. He and He alone knows why He's taking the time He's taking to do the things we think He should be doing. Or even why He's taking the time to do the things He has said He will do. He and He alone knows. And so this morning, friends, verse 11, put your weight here as we wait on Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms, our Lord Jesus. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. May we trust him. May we see him. And as we see him, give him our all. Amen.